Good morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 6 today. Uh, you can turn to page 809 in your church Bibles. Luke chapter 6. Life has only gotten busier as I'm, the year comes to a close and, and I'm an elder now. And, you know, there's just more to do, more preaching opportunities, more leading opportunities. And uh, it's always good to get more help. So I want you to imagine that we here at Grace Fellowship get a brand new super elder. He preaches every week. He organizes all the committees. He knows everybody in here and he knows everybody out there. There's just one problem. He gets up to preach and becomes pretty clear that he doesn't know who God is. He doesn't believe Jesus is the Son of God. How big of a problem is that to fix? That's like getting oil and water to be friends. It's not going to happen. Or just imagine, students, if you're involved in your campus ministry fellowship and the president of, the, of the, the student government says, yeah, I'm not a Christian anymore. Can I still be here? No. If he comes out like that on Sunday, on Monday, he's not going to be in. <laughs> Here's the point. When something is, is incompatible to that degree, like totally incompatible, you can't make it work. You can't bend things. You can't make a few small or even big adjustments. You have to drop it and you have to start over. And in last week's text, Jesus showed us by examining the religious leaders that as popular and as smart as they were, they were incompatible with the very ministry he had come to build. New wine, old wineskins, they burst. And so, Jesus is dropping it all, so to speak, and he's starting over. He's dropped the leaders. He's walked away from the synagogues, from his hometown. In fact, he's now, in this text, going into solitude. And he does it to begin to rebuild Israel from the top down. He's going to start with the leaders. And following your outline, when he does that, we're going to learn today what he's going to call all of his disciples to, from the leaders down to the newest disciples. He's going to call them to live a life of suffering and to love their enemies. Even the ones who are teaching terribly in the synagogue. That, according to Jesus, is how God's people are going to change the world. And that is how we will change the world. So let me start by reading verses 12 uh, through 20. And uh, 20 will cut us off in the middle of Jesus' most famous speech. So I'm just going to set it up. But before I do that, let me read the first uh, 12 through 16 verses. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In those days, he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. 
And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Jesus will soon gather all of his disciples and all of his followers. But the first thing he does here is he calls leaders or more accurately, the word is apostles from among those disciples, 12 of them. Now, that might be a little confusing at first because normally when you read the Gospels and you get to these 12 people, you think these are the disciples and here they're called apostles. And there's a point to that. I'm going to unify that group in a moment. But for now, let me clarify but by, by helping explain what disciple means and what apostle means. So the Greek translation of the word disciple means what you probably think. Apprentice or student. Somebody sitting under a master, in this case, Jesus. But then we get to the word apostle and it's a bit higher. Almost a graduated disciple, so to speak. It, it roughly translates to one who is sent off on a mission. Sort of like an emissary. There may be like leader disciples. But the point in their selection, and I might add, right after Jesus has rejected the Jewish leadership, is that this selection is not lightly done. Because it looks like he's fed up with the leaders and he goes and he spends all night in prayer, which is significant. And then he picks his guys. But two reasons why this is not a rash decision. Number one, because he spends all night doing it. Number two, they're from his discipleship clan already. And number three... If you look back in Genesis, this represents something much greater. This represents a rebuild of Israel's old leadership. Let's take a quick look at Genesis chapter 35. I'm just going to read half of a verse. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. And I could give you all the names, but you'd forget them. And the point of all this is that God's plan for Israel from the beginning had 12 diverse men, Jacob's sons, leading Israel, the tribes of Israel. These men led Israel's tribes to reach the nations. And you know what happened. They failed. Didn't quite work. So all I'm saying here is that Jesus, in a sense, is relaunching the tribe leaders. They're diverse, and now, with that in mind, he is about to relaunch the entire tribe. Let's read verses 17 through 20 in light of that. And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. 
And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And we'll get to the rest of that teaching in a, in a little bit here. But I just want to bridge that so you know who he's talking to. So the second thing Jesus does here after calling the leadership is he calls his disciples or rather the apostles in training. So the scene is this. Jesus has just sworn in the apostles and joined them with them in verse 17 is this great crowd of his disciples who are addressed by Jesus as as one group in verse 20. And just to make a quick distinction here, Though the 12 disciples are specially chosen, they're included in that group that Jesus addresses. In other words, they're still disciples in that they're still under Jesus's headship, sent by him in the same way that Israel's tribes back in the Old Testament and the tribe leaders in Genesis were all under God. So they're still underneath that authority. And now here, the disciples and the apostles are all gathered for their mission orders. In other words, these orders that Jesus is about to give apply to every follower of Jesus. And before we read those orders, I'm going to pause and I want to identify a huge group in this scene that Jesus actually doesn't address the crowds come to be healed I mean look at verse 20 Jesus is about to speak but he's not talking to them and this is a very significant clarification because if you grew up in church like me or you watched some of those maybe kind of hokey videos of Jesus and the sermon on the mount you imagine Jesus preaching to the crowds of people the little old ladies and the, and the families and the people who just got healed. But that's not what Jesus does here. Look at verse 20. He lifts his eyes to who? His disciples. Not the common people. He is rebuilding Israel, but he's doing it from the top down and not the bottom up. What does that mean for us? Why is it so significant that we make that distinction? Well, there's, there's two reasons and applications for each. First, the first huge implication is that in Jesus' new way, there is still leadership. Though Jesus has rejected the Jewish leaders, he has not rejected leadership in its entirety. Not at all. In fact, he's aiming to restore what Genesis broke. And all of this is done through the apostles and the apostles in training. He's aiming to restore it through these people. Now, here's how you apply this. Because if you're like me and you talk with people about what Christianity is, you encounter people who think that Christianity is supposed to be a hippie commune. Right? We're kind of all the same and they abolish leadership. And they think that authority is a bad thing. And here's what you can say. You can point at the text and say, Jesus disagrees with that. 
And he does it by appointing leaders. And by the way, also, take these people to Revelation chapter 12 because it's a vision of the future. And guess what? Those 12 tribes, they still exist. They're not gone. Here's the second implication. This new teaching that Jesus is about to unveil is for his disciples. And by disciples, I mean apostles and the followers, the disciples, the apostles in training. This teaching is not generalized teaching for the multitudes who are not followers of Jesus. And here's how that applies. When you meet people who say that Jesus has come here at the Sermon on the Mount to bring good moral teaching for everybody, take them here. Jesus disagrees with that. Unless you are a follower of Jesus, this teaching is incompatible with you. You can't do this stuff. The things that Jesus is about to say. You can look like it, you can legislate it, but it won't work unless you're a follower. This is only for the new Israel in the same way that the Ten Commandments were for the old Israel. So, with all that in mind, now that we see who Jesus is calling here, let's look at what he is calling them to. Let me read verses 20 through 26. But I'll start, actually, by pausing at 23. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. That reads a little different when you're not talking to the multitudes, huh? What Jesus is doing here is he's calling his disciples and especially, I might add, his apostles to future glory by way of present suffering. Future glory, present suffering, otherwise known as point two on your outline. Here's the plan for all you disciples, Jesus says. Under this new way, if you follow me, you will be hungry. You will weep. People will hate you and they will exclude you and they will revile you and spurn your name as evil on my account. But Jesus also says in the same breath, all of those things will become untrue one day. Can you imagine that sales pitch? You imagine interviewing the leader of your student fellowship? Okay, guys, here's the plan. The old system is broken. It's been broken, especially the leaders. Remember all the prophets who tried to tell the leaders they were wrong? 
and they got stoned and they got kicked out, they got burned alive, you go be them. You go be treated the exact same way. In fact, top down, leaders, you're going to get it worse. That's what you get promoted to. Anybody still want to be an apostle? The esteem and the the wealth and the comfort that the Jewish leaders around you get, don't expect that here. Now, I could go on about how hard that is, but Jesus actually frames this teaching with the hope of a happy ending. And so we need to try very hard to frame it that way as well. He's basically saying that to follow him will not be easy. It's going to be like more like being in a bloody war, but victory is guaranteed. In fact, just imagine Jesus saying this while he's talking to the multitudes and he's healing them, which he was. You know, it's like Jesus saying, you're going to be fine in the end while he's literally curing somebody of leprosy. That might stick a little more if you're watching the master at work and he's promising you those things. These are words of of great comfort. And these words, as a reminder, are aimed at apostles and disciples. From the leader all the way down to the intern. Now, even framed positively, this might seem kind of like bad news and certainly kind of a challenging first sermon for a follower of Jesus. But if you think that's hard, look at what happens to those who are not following Jesus. Verses 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are a fool now, for you should be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so the, follow, the fathers did to the false prophets. Now remember, he's not talking to the multitudes. He's not, even though the mountain had good acoustics probably, he's not yelling down so the synagogues can hear. He's still talking to his followers, his disciples, his apostles. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's warning followers who get their calling backwards. Those who resist suffering now, they're actually going to get it later. And that suffering will be the final word. And I need to explain for a few moments since he's talking to his disciples and not like the black hat villains that look obvious, I need to explain for a few moments just how easy it is to do this, to get it backwards. So, say you're serving the Lord, you're a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, and say you go out and you're reaching people and people start to reject you. And they tell you that they like the old you better. Because they're gonna, especially if you went to high school with them. And you're tired of being rejected. And suddenly you sit down and you turn on the television 
or you're streaming and you look at some prosperity preacher who is rich and telling you to be rich and has people fighting for his autograph. Now, you can bash that guy all you want now, that prosperity preacher, but tell me you've never suffered and at least thought in the back of your mind for a moment. I wish I was that guy. That sure seems comfortable. Why am I suffering for this? Why did I get baptized for this? Can't the suffering just stop? Tell me that you've never looked over and wanted their job for just a moment. Now in light of that, here's what applies to us as disciples. All of us. From the elders to the people who are getting baptized this morning. The new guys, the new girls. Don't reverse your calling. If you are poor and you are hungry and you are sad and you are hated in the service of Jesus, you are blessed. You're not breaking even. This world is as close to hell as you get, according to Jesus. We need to frame it with that hope. This suffering will come and it has to come, but it will end. Same breath. But on the other hand, if you are rich and you are content and you are happy and you are without enemies this morning as a follower of Jesus, there's a good chance that you are not really a follower of Jesus. Even though you might say you are, even though you fool everybody in here, this world may be as close to heaven as you get. You won't fool Jesus. Woe to you. You know, one of the surest evidences that this is true, Judas was in the crowd. I don't know where his heart was as he heard these words. Do you think he thought that he was fooling Jesus? If he can't, we can't. Let me pause to share a story of, of how, how bitter this fight can be. This is not an easy fight. But let me share also how it can really grow you. One thing the Lord has been showing me in the past year, especially as an elder, is that often my moments closest to God have been when I've been hungry and uncomfortable and hated for what I do. Those have been the moments when I have been closest to God. Now, in the moment, I won out. But when I think back, I say, no, those are the moments I remember. And my most sinful moments have been when I am full and comfortable or well-liked and my guard just 
drops. When the sky is clear and when everything is well. That is the real test. That's how you have to analyze yourself. Not when all the dashboard lights are going off. When everything looks fine. That's when you should actually get worried. Am I doing it right? So consider your life. Are you really a disciple, if that's what you claim? One more application, and this is if you're one of the multitudes here today, not yet a disciple of Jesus. Know what Jesus is actually calling you to. Christianity is not an easy life. You may have heard otherwise. It's not icing on the cake. This will not be a a neat operation. And if a preacher has told you that, he has lied to you. Jesus disagrees. But I tell you, Jesus tells you right here that the comforts of this world, they will pale in comparison to the comforts Jesus offers. In fact, these comforts that we sometimes try so hard to grasp and avoid suffering, they can lead to death. While suffering leads to to life. That's what Jesus is calling all of his followers to. So with that in mind, that is what life as a disciple of Jesus is supposed to look like. And here's why we take so long to get to this. Because when Jesus calls all of his disciples to look like this, He's simply showing us what God has looked like all along and what Jesus' life proved. And with that in mind, let me read verses 27 through 36. This is what God looks like. And this is what Jesus calls us to do as we suffer. Verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What Jesus is calling his followers to do here as they suffer is to love their enemies like God does. Love their enemies like 
God does. Now, he gives practical ways that might play out in verses 27 through 30. I'm not going to focus on those. Read those on your own time. But instead, look at how I think he sums them up in verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus is simply asking his followers in a horizontal way as they run into that suffering is to make the first move towards redemption. You go first. Don't just let suffering happen. Go towards it. Make the first move towards redemption with those who are enemies of God. Look ahead at the desired actions of an enemy, how you wish they were, and don't expect them to make the first move. Now, I could make so many applications toward husbands and wives that it wouldn't even be funny. But I'm not going to zero in there. Instead, zoom out to the whole world. Remember that the world is very fallen. We're talking about disciples talking to people who aren't followers. We're not talking about believers working out conflict specifically. Remember, this world is fallen because of that reason. Wouldn't it be silly if you expect sinners to fix themselves? Like when you see a Christian post on social media, you know, about some shooting, and they're like, what would cause somebody to do that? Are you serious? Do you not know what it means to be a sinner? Why would you expect the world to not be the world? Don't be fooled. Remember, the world has fallen. So you, Christian, you go first. Remember, you can frame this with the same hope of the previous text, that that victory is guaranteed. So with that in mind, let me propose that this short little reading is not simply moral teaching to what people can be, but it shows us who God has been all along. Look at the challenge of, say, verse 27. Just look there. Do good to those who hate you. Is that not true of God? Who, though Jewish leadership has has perpetually failed, he actually sent Jesus to restore it. Even doing good, I might add, by warning people who are opposing God, not just being some punching bag. Or look at the implications of verse 32. In short, it says, it's nothing to only love people who love you. Even sinners do that. Now imagine and apply that to God. Isn't that true of him? If God actually acted like that, if he only loved people who loved him, your Bible would be very short. It would end right there at the beginning of Genesis, right there in the garden. Adam and Eve would have died. No. Verse 36 sums it well. Look there. Since God is merciful, he calls for mercy. And Jesus, in acting in total accordance as the Son of God, is rebuilding a merciful people. He's doing what Genesis meant to do. 
He's doing what the tribes couldn't. And here's what that implies. The painful, suffering-filled life that Jesus is calling you to, not just suffering, but loving your enemies, it's not bad medicine. And it doesn't sound so crazy when you realize that all you're doing when you do that is you're looking like God. That's all you're doing. And as the son of God, this is why Jesus's life so perfectly echoed his teaching here. Jesus, who like the apostles was called submitting to his father. Jesus, who would be hungry and hated and cursed. Jesus, who loved his enemies, not by being a punching bag, but by warning them in love and then being killed by them to restore peace with God and make a new Israel possible. In short, the highest leader of all, Jesus, suffered the most. And so he is blessed above all and invites us to join him. When he means the top down and says, you go first, he went first. And that should drive you to your knees, both in worship, but also in humility and to remind you that it's, it's good news. Not because of who people are and how good they can be with nice teaching, but who Jesus is. The perfect reflection of God's mercy who is now waiting in paradise for his disciples to join him as the world spits them out in disgust and as the world spits you out in disgust. Jesus is waiting. And that's the main point of all this. Jesus' disciples are called to welcome rejection by the world because they have acceptance by God. Now, before we consider a, a final application, consider the original audience and how they might have taken all this. The recipient of this writing from Luke, the Roman official Theophilus from chapter 1, I think he would have been pretty challenged by Jesus' appointment of new leadership of 12 common, diverse men from amongst Jesus' disciples as opposed to established, popular, comfortable, wealthy Jewish religious leaders. I think he would have been challenged by that. But you know what? I think Theophilus also might have seen the ultimate connection Jesus was making as he challenged his disciples. He wants them to look like God and he will look like God. And so he is going to look very different from the Jewish leaders that were common in the day. So in other words... Applying that to us, if you look different than the wealthy, popular, prosperous, false teachers out there, good. Don't want their position. Don't try to build our church up to look like that. Don't sacrifice the teachings of Jesus to put people in these seats. Don't do it. 
It won't satisfy, and you'll die in the end. Don't do it. Instead, love the position you're in. If you're hated, if you're poor, if you're maligned, if you're fighting hard to love your enemies. And that's your final application. Love your enemies. And you can pick any of those verses for specifics, and that's, that's fine. Just do any of those, and you'll be moving in the right direction. But I'd like to just focus on two more broad ways that you can apply this. Number one, desire mercy for those who make you suffer. Because if you're like me, and somebody is making you suffer, and you're doing the right thing, it's hard to be merciful towards that person. I mean, following this text here in Luke are are countless examples of strong enemies of God who were made into stronger followers of God. And do you know what got them there? Mercy. A later apostle named Paul is a great example of this. He was an enemy of God who looked like a follower of God. Do you know how many Christians he had killed? But then look at God, who in mercy restores Paul and makes him an apostle. Not like some intern, he makes him an apostle, one who is sent. And if that's hard to swallow on your first attempt, I get that. This is not a clean operation. But please, consider that you, as Paul himself would later write, were once an enemy of God, and yet God loved you and had mercy on you. So if you're having a hard time forgiving and being merciful, remember the mercy that you were shown. Second application, warn those who oppose God. I really have to lean on this because I, I grew up in a, in a fairly pacifistic environment, church. It was like, hey, just kind of be like a punching bag. Just kind of be nice. That's how they would misread chapters like this. Is that actually love? Not at all. Not at all. Warning people who are opposing God in love, that is love too. Remember, Jesus, who encapsulates love and is the son of God, just stood up to religious leaders. They were abusing what God had set up. And so don't simply read this text and assume that the correct application is that you're supposed to be a punching bag because that is not love either. Treat an enemy of God the way you would want to be treated. Example, here's an example. If you're a Christian, think back to what got you there. Think back to that sermon or think back to that friend's intervention which led you to Christ. Now, imagine that that preacher or that friend had never spoken up because they didn't want to offend you. Imagine that. Make sense? Speak up in love. In the same way, I and the preachers here are not here to entertain you. I love you. 
and the other preachers here, they love you too. And so we give you these clear warnings and clear encouragements and clear teachings. And so in the same way, bend that out to your enemies, both those who actively oppose God and the ones that as you get to know them, you're like, I'm not sure that this person knows the Lord. Bend mercy out to those people. Love them and let them know what awaits them if they choose to follow Jesus, but also what happens if they don't. That is love. And friends, this is life as the new Israel. Leaders and followers, every disciple of Jesus called to a life of love and suffering and mercy that we can do because Jesus did first. And our hope through all this suffering is that many would know him and join us when we look on the face of Jesus when all the suffering finally ends. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your clear calling. We know what we are called to. We know that we live in a country where convenience and Christianity can go hand in hand. Lord, may we not be fooled. As it gets darker and darker and the people around us even good friends maybe even some in here begin to be persuaded by the world to avoid suffering and to live a convenient enemy free life would you give us the sober mind to tell them that they are getting it backwards Would you give us the clear mind to love our enemies by both being merciful towards them in love, forgiving and forbearing, but also, Lord, would you give us the soberity to remember that we are also loving them by telling them where they are headed if they are not living according to the way you died to establish. Thank you so much for your mercy towards us. Amen.